We're going to start talking about 2,000 years ago. We're talking about Jesus, all right? So that's the context of a lot of these things. And back then, there were a ton of different cultures. All of them had a bunch of different gods, religious systems, uh, all these things people would chase after. And the general consensus is you pick one. You know, if you like getting drunk, you get the god of wine. <laughs> if you want your farm to do well, you get the god of agriculture. If you want to win a war, you go to the god of war. Like, that, that's what you do, right? And you get the picture, right? There's a god for everything. And it's assumed that whatever approach you took, like, there was at least a chance of things working out for you. If you did what people kind of thought the god wanted, uh, you would hope that they might bless your efforts. And it's into that environment, this cultural kind of a soup of, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to go for, just go for that, maybe it'll work out. Jesus speaks these words in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I want you to get, like, back then, how, how bold that statement was, how like, countercultural that statement was. You know, it, Jesus restricted out of all these different things, says, no, none of those work. What does work is me. Like Jesus claimed that he was the one way to God. This is ridiculous. Like David shared a statement from C.S. Lewis, uh, the first setting of the series, first message of the series, where C.S. Lewis said, you know, you can think that Jesus is a, um, the son of God or he's a liar and a lunatic. There's really no in between. This statement would be crazy if Jesus is not the son of God. No good teacher is going to say, I am the truth. All right, that would be lying. But Jesus was the son of God. So he restricts out of all these different things one way. And we get that, you know, we understand that back then that had a lot of impact. We understand that that was really countercultural then. And we might think to ourselves like, man, thank goodness we live in America where we don't have a bunch of crazy superstitions and where we don't have a bunch of false gods. But I want to tell you like this applies just as much to us today as it did to people back then. We all chase other gods. And you know you may not uh, make sacrifices <laughs> to one or or worship a certain god, but the way that we pursue success, money, influence, or relationships above anything else is a way that we pursue false gods. Like those are other ways of trying to get life. So we look to these worldly things or to other people to fulfill us, to bring us to God, and, and they will not work. So I want to talk with you just about the surrounding verses, kind of the situation that these, this statement happened in. In John 13, we learn that Jesus and his disciples are enjoying a meal together. This is before the Passover festival. Jesus knows that soon he's going to go die on the cross. And so he washes his disciples' feet. He tells them to love each other. Uh, he tells them what's going to happen in the next few days, including going and dying on the cross. He tells them one of, them, one of the 12 is going to betray him. And the disciples hearing all these things are like, whoa, like, dude, that's a lot. Like, please, you know, explain this to us. And here's what Jesus says to them in John 14, 1 through 7. This is on your handout if you want to read along. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. 
And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So what does it mean for us today that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Pray with me, and then we're going to get started into this. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us uh, really just see how the truth of this statement should impact us and how it should change our lives. I pray that you would open our eyes to the, really the majesty of your person. And I pray that you would help us to, to understand what we should do in response. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to walk through each of these claims, why each of them is completely essential for us. And we're going to go in the order of the verse, but you're going to see that each of these things really is inseparable from the rest. Okay, they're all related. So you may hear me say things that you're like, oh, that, that's you know, similar to something. Yeah, they're all related. <laughs> like we, we need to understand that. So in order to grasp why Jesus claimed to be the way is important for not just us, but for all people, uh, we need to understand the condition of people before God. So that's what we're going to start with, just our condition uh, before Jesus. And this is true in a general sense. This is true of humanity, but it's also true of each one of us before we commit our life to Christ. So let's start off. Every human being is a sinner. There's some uh, references in your handout. I'm going to read the verse quickly, uh, but you can go look these up if you'd like. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 says that we are by nature deserving of wrath, we're dead in transgression and sin. So all of us are sinners. God is a good judge. He punishes sin and rewards righteousness. You can write, I don't think Romans 2.6 is on the handout. I might have left that one out there. But you can write Romans 2.6 next to that. It says God will repay each person according to what they've done. But God is a good judge. And judgment comes after we die. It says Hebrews 9.27 says people are destined to die once. And after that to face judgment. So, we have this problem of sin, God's a good judge, which means sin has consequences, now and for eternity. Romans 5.12 says that Adam sinned, and because Adam sinned, sin's brought into the world, and everyone else sins. And because of sin, there's death. Right? Like, this has consequences on our life. Like, we die, ultimately not because of a biological process. We die because Adam sinned. That is what the Bible tells us. And then... Justice from God is eternal punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 describes what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And it says, He will punish those who do not know God. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That is really heavy and difficult to understand. And honestly, I struggle with that. There are some things that have helped me like, understand this on an intellectual level. But emotionally, like, that is just a weight that is really, really hard to shake. But I, I want to share an illustration with you that helped me to grasp this on some level. So I want you to think about a rug, all right? This can be, you know, a really nice rug, like, uh, you know, $80,000, like, Turkish weave. This can be a common, like, Costco, you know, $50 rug. It doesn't matter, okay? If someone takes one match, and they light the match, and set the rug on fire, and the rug is destroyed... How much money do they owe the owner of the rug? Do they owe the cost of a match? Or do they owe the cost of a rug? 
we all understand they owe the cost of the rug because that's what's being, that's the offense. The offense is that the rug is burned up, not that someone lit a match. And this is, it is relevant, okay? Sin is an offense against a perfect God. God is perfect. And so when we offend his perfect character, it is extreme, like beyond what we can understand. And that's why the punishment is extreme. Like we need to take seriously the, the severity of sin in our life. It is just beyond what we can comprehend. So we need a way to be delivered from this condition. We need something outside of ourselves because we're dead in sin. Like that's what we already saw. We can't do anything. Jesus identifies himself as the only way out of this condition. So Jesus, the way, he's the way to mercy. Mercy is that we don't get justice from God. We don't get justice from God. There's a reason that a lot of uh, Bible verses ask, uh, you know, pray to God to, for us, him to treat us according to his mercy and not according to his justice, all right? If we got justice from God, all of us would have eternal punishment. You don't want justice from God. What you want is mercy. And Jesus died on the cross and suffered the wrath and punishment of God that we deserved. Okay, that's, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. You can think all you want about the physical suffering that was there. You know, I'm sure the nails through his wrists like hurt a lot. But lots of people had nails through their wrists. Okay, crucifixion was common around that time. Jesus did so much more than that. He took all the wrath of God that you and I deserved on that cross. And right before he died, he said, it is finished. And that, that term meant back then, it was, it was like paying a debt when you would pay the final installment. You'd say, it is finished, paid in full. So the just punishment we deserved was put on Jesus instead of on us. And by his death at the cross, he freed us from the judgment of God. That's what he did on the cross. He freed us from the justice of God. We have mercy instead of justice. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's what Jesus did on the cross, is we don't get our sins counted against us. Jesus is also the way to grace. And grace means we can have a relationship with God the Father. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It is not just Jesus' death that is significant for his being the way. Right? Like he's not the way only because of his death. It's also because of his perfect life and his resurrection. The Bible tells us that not only, God, not only does God take our sin and put it on Jesus, he takes Jesus' righteousness and attributes that to us. What that means is that you do not, you do not have to work for your salvation because Jesus already earned it for you. There's nothing you have to do like on your own to be saved. And I do have one application for you here. The application for this one is just believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save you. And, you know, you've heard this before. This is not new. But I want you to know there are ways this is rejected in our culture and even in our own hearts. And there's two major things, two major ways this, this is rejected. The first one is thinking that less than this belief is going to result in a way to God or salvation. It's thinking that less than Jesus is the way. Some examples I've personally heard people give 
or uh, picked up like all of us have from the culture. Like, you know, just believe. And if you ask, believe in what, you miss the point. <laughs> you, just, you just need to believe, that's all. Uh, you know, all religions have part of the answer. They all lead to God eventually. Like, you know, you'll, you'll get there through the course of your life. Uh, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. You know, you can believe whatever you want, but as long as you're sincere, it'll get you there. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you try to be a good, try to be a good person. You know, if, you're, if your life looks good enough, if you're better than kind of some of the criminals and stuff, like, then, then you're good. That's, that's good. Uh, if you're true to yourself, you can't go wrong. You know, oh, I'm, I'm glad that belief works for you, man. I'm glad that makes you happy, but I... You can put whatever you want in there. Uh, the real salvation was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Just kidding. That last one was a joke. I've never heard someone say that. But <laughs> I, I seriously think that some people have the idea that their relationships their legacy on the world, their good works, or their good intentions are going to be able to save them. And they won't. Only Jesus can do that. So Jesus excludes any other way of salvation, but when he says he's the way, sincerity is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. <laughs> People are that all the time. Uh, being a good person is not enough. We're dead in sin already. Like we were, you know, being good doesn't stop you from being dead. We have to, like the requirement for being saved is believing in the historical fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and was raised to life three days later. That is the requirement of salvation. And the second way we see this rejected is, is thinking that more is required of us in order to be saved. So the first one is, you know, you, you don't have to quite do that. You can just kind of be sincere. This one says, you know, there's a little more you have to do. And the Apostle Paul had this to say to people who were struggling with the belief that salvation was Jesus plus something else. He said, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul says the only way you're saved is by faith, by believing in Jesus. And that's not by works. Nothing that you do contributes to that. And these verses go against what the enemy, what our culture, what our flesh would have us believe. You know, we're really easily deceived into thinking that we have to do something extra in order to earn us, earn our salvation. And I want to be clear that doing good works, growing in righteousness, it is actually a promised fruit of salvation. Like it's a result of salvation, uh, but it, and it's something we can hope for and work toward. But it's not the same thing. It is not salvation. And there's an example I want to give you from the Bible. Okay, there's two guys being crucified next to Jesus. One of them is mocking him, saying, if you're the king, get us down from here, dude. And the other guy says, don't you see, like, this man did nothing wrong. You and I were up here for a reason, but this guy did nothing. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. That's what he says. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what good works did that guy have time to do? He had time to recognize that he was there on purpose. Like, he was a criminal. He knew he was a criminal. He had time to say, Jesus, please remember me. He had time to believe. He, he, he didn't have communion. He didn't have a daily quiet time. He never shared his faith. He only believed in Jesus. And he was, in, with, he was with Jesus in heaven that same day. So that's all we have to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. We're going to move on to Jesus being the truth. Jesus, the truth. And your first blank there is Jesus believed in the truth of the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, wait, we only, we only hear about Jesus from the New Testament, right? So how can we know 
that he believed this, that everything's true, you know, that's a good question. I would seriously encourage you to pursue answering that question for yourself uh, so you can be sure about that. And I'd be glad to talk to you if you have questions about where to start. Really, the, the hinge question is, are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, accurate historical accounts of Jesus' life? Because if they're accurate, then Jesus is the Son of God because he raised from the dead, which is crazy. <laughs> That's only happened to Jesus. And also, uh, they tell us that Jesus believed the whole Bible. If the Gospels are true, the whole Bible's true because Jesus doesn't lie. All right, he believed the Bible. And, and this, is, this is just the way it is. Like the Old Testament, uh, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, every time he was tempted, he would go back to the Old Testament. Satan would say, hey, why don't you do this? And Jesus would say, it is written, and speak. The phrase, it is written, may not have like much cultural impact for us today. Back then, that was serious. <laughs> when you said it is written, it meant you were referring to the scripture. And so Jesus goes back to the Old Testament every time. Uh, in arguments with religious leaders, Jesus would use scripture to end the argument. They would come up with something, they'd say, they'd come up with this weird question, you know, they're trying to trap him in like a logical thing. He would just say, well, you know, the Bible, you know, the Old Testament says this. And he would stop speaking. And that was it. That was all I needed. And then he explained how the prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. A bunch of different prof prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus explained that to people. He wanted people to understand that the Old Testament which is the Bible they had at the time, was the word of God. So as you read the New Testament, you see Jesus uh, and other authors using that phrase, it is written. I'll keep an eye out for that because you can get a lot of insight into seeing just how much of the Old Testament is actually present in the New Testament. It's really cool. So he believed the Old Testament was the truth, not just historical facts, but also uh, instructions for life, you know, the benefit of examples of the stories, like all these things Jesus believed were helpful for us. And he also confirmed the authority of the apostles, which is his 12 disciples, plus the apostle Paul, to teach God's word. Okay, that's in John 16, if you wanna read about this. Uh, J.I. Packer has a really good quote on it. And so I'm gonna read that quote. It says, he had promised the 12 that the spirit should come and teach them what in his own earthly ministry he had left unsaid. And he kept his promise so that the apostolic teaching was in reality the complete and final version of his own. And this is why when the church was putting together what they thought was the New Testament, what books belonged in the New Testament, the most important criteria was that an apostle wrote it or that an apostle was, had direct oversight over the person writing it. Like Luke writing the book of Acts, right? Like he was traveling with Paul. Paul's an apostle, Luke's with him, so the book's good. Like that, that was most of their reasoning here. And uh, so the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus believed all this was the truth. And more than simply teaching the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. This is your next blank here. Jesus is the word of God. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is a mystery here that... I don't think I'm ever going to fully grasp like the word made flesh. Honestly, there's some, some things about that I do not understand. But one way this really matters is that Jesus' life and his words were perfect. Okay, He never did anything wrong in word, in speech, thought, motivation, or action. Okay, Everything Jesus said is true. 
and why, does, why do these things matter, right? <laughs> why does everything Jesus said is true, him believing the Bible, why does that matter for us? We should try to do what he says. Okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> if Jesus speaks the truth, and if Jesus believes the Bible is true, we should act on what the Bible says. We need to live in reality. Have you ever been wrong about something and ended up hurting yourself because of that? All of you have. <laughs> I know because I have. You're a human person. Like when we get things wrong, we end up hurting ourselves or others. We want to live in reality. You want to live in reality. I promise. And this is what God gives us. It gives us the truth about reality. And this is about practical application to our daily life. So there's three things that are really required if we want to grow in this. They're not on your handout, but if you want to write them down, I'll go slow. The first one is knowing what the Bible says. You need to know what the Bible says. The second one is understanding how it relates to daily life. Okay, it's one thing to know what it says. It's another to understand how that applies to you. And the third thing is actually doing it. Knowing what the Bible says, understanding how it relates to daily life, and actually doing it. These three things are not optional if you claim Jesus as your Lord. Later in John 14, Jesus says, whoever has my command, commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So your application here is exert effort to learn what the Bible says and do it. Exert effort. This may seem to contrast with what we were talking about earlier, where grace is all that's needed to be saved. You know, you believe in Jesus and you're saved. But this is not about salvation, okay? You're going to be saved. If you believe in Jesus, you are going to be saved. This is about living in a way that brings success to us in God's eyes, which is different than what we think of success, uh, and in a way that honors God. So if you ever find yourself with thoughts like, well, you know, Jesus died for my sin, which means now I can do whatever I want, right? Or uh, ah, this, this is kind of a small thing anyway. Like God probably didn't care very much about that. Uh, first off, you're normal. At least I hope you're normal because I have those thoughts. Um, secondly, we really need to take seriously the fact that our actions show what we believe deep down. Jesus, uh, James gives us a really sobering warning about faith that does not result in action. You have one verse in your handout, James 2.14. I'm going to read kind of a longer passage as well uh, through verse 23. And that'll be on the screen if you want to read with me. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, show me your faith. Uh, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture is fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. That is sobering. 
You know, in James 2.14, we see this rhetorical question, can such faith save them? The answer is no. And we think that this contradicts you know, uh, what Ephesians 2 says about salvation not being by works. But James is not saying you have to do other things in order to be saved. Okay, remember the example of the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to help anybody. James is saying that if faith does not start to work itself out practically in what you do, it's not real faith. That is, that is really scary for me. Because I know the motivations of my heart and I can think, man, this is not from a good motivation. This is not uh, seeking God. This is really seeking myself. I need to be like, aware of that and careful of these things. I need to be really sobered by that. This contrast really is, is illustrated well in two statements. I, I found this to be very helpful. Uh, if you want to, you can write them on the back of your handout, and if you don't, it's all right. But the first one is just faith plus works equals salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul is railing against in Ephesians. <laughs> he says, it is by grace you've been saved, not by works. Is this faith plus works equals salvation formula. That is not how it works. Faith equals salvation plus works. Okay, that's the difference. Works do not contribute anything to our salvation, but they're a result of our faith in Christ. So is your faith in Jesus resulting in a life that is continually growing to look like, look like his? How do you think Jesus would act toward your classes, toward your roommates, your work? You can learn about that. You can learn how Jesus would react to those things by reading the Bible. And then you can put it into practice. You actually should put it into practice. All these commands that God gives us are because he loves you. God wants you to experience a good life. And every command in the Bible is to help you experience a better life, not a worse one. And there's a lie that we can believe that, you know, God really just wants to hold back good things from me. Um, if we believe that lie, we're going to see the boundaries that he sets as restrictive instead of protective. We're going to see the commands that he gives like being forced on us by a tyrant instead of worthy of pursuing because they make life better. So don't believe the lie that God wants to hold back things from you. He wants the best life for you. And that's why all the Bible is given to us. And even in the most difficult circumstances, right, you can trust him with all of your life. And this is what leads us into Jesus' last claim. And I think this one can really help us tremendously just as we're trying to live the Christian life. This can really help us. Jesus, the life. Uh, this means spiritual life now and forever. Spiritual life now and forever. So it starts with a relationship with God on earth. You know, like we looked at earlier in Ephesians 2, we're spiritually dead. Christ dies and makes us alive. It's really common to hear people say, and I, I, you know, I've even said this, I think, that you know, everyone's a child of God. And in some sense, that's true. Like God made everyone. There's not a person that exists that wasn't created by God. In another sense, it's really not true. Ephesians 2 says, says we're God's enemies before Christ. But Jesus reconciles us to God, and he gives us a relationship with God as a loving father. Romans 8, 14 says, those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. And the Bible tells us that this means God will use everything in our life for our good, even difficulty and loss. These, these things are meant to grow us, not destroy us. And this is the promise we see we receive in Romans 8, 28. 
So listen to how the Apostle Paul, who he wrote Romans, he wrote uh, this verse up above and uh, a lot of the letters to churches. Listen to how he responds to hardship. After, this is after a passage in 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. He's talking about how he's been shipwrecked a bunch of times. He's been whipped five times with the highest possible punishment you could offer a Roman citizen, which is crazy. It's like you couldn't lash them 40 times, so they'd lash him 39 times instead. All right, he's been whipped 39 times, five times. He's been beaten with rods three times. They literally tried to murder him by throwing stones at him until he was dead. Like that is the extent of this guy has endured hardship. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why would he delight in those things? I think it's because he actually believed God was using those for his good. So a relationship with God as our loving father should bring us security and joy even in the middle of hardship. That's what a relationship with God on earth means for us. We also have a relationship with God in heaven. And this statement in John, John 14, 6 takes place as Jesus is describing how he's going to heaven to prepare a place for the disciples. He wanted them to understand that they were going somewhere with him. And if you believe in him, you have that promise too, that Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. Revelation 21, 3 through 4 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So in heaven, we're going to experience the full presence of God all the time. That's awesome. We're going to live the best life possible, according to God, not to us, which is so much better. I don't know a lot about heaven, okay? But I'm really excited for whatever it is, because God thinks it's pretty cool. That's enough for me. And those two things together, a relationship with God a relationship with in, on earth and a relationship with God in heaven, really should give us a foundation of hope through our entire life. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So your application here is hope in Jesus alone. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you are secure forever. Jesus actually rules the whole world and the whole, whole universe right now. We just don't see it. One day, he's actually going to return visibly to make everything right. So if you're putting hope in your good works, if you're putting hope in passing a class or in graduating college or whether or not you're in a relationship right now, you should stop. Those things will not hold up your hope. As you get older, don't put your hope in your marriage, in your children, in your career, in your political party. Those things will not hold your hope. They will collapse. Put your hope fully on Jesus Christ and then move forward in the life that he gives you. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for giving us a way 
to God. I thank you that you've given us this gift. I pray you'd open all of our eyes to just the, the love you have for us and the life you call us to. And as we consider just what this means for us, please give us all clarity on what we need to do in response to your word. Let us be doers of the word, not hearers only. So Lord, you rule. You're worthy to receive our, our devotion, our worship and praise. So I just thank you for that and for all you've done for us. Amen.